episode 359, Value-Based Payments. You get what you pay for. Today, I'm speaking with Dan O'Neill. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Last week's show was with Wayne Jenkins, MD, from Centivo, and we talked about how insurance design, when not done well, can lead, in a nutshell, to mental and physical health problems for employees. This is a great lead-in to the conversation today with Dan O'Neill. And before I get into why it's a great lead-in, let me just start here and don't roll your eyes. What is value-based care? Consider this delineation. There's value-based payments, and then there's the type of care that these payments incentivize. You would hope that a value-based payment would result in care that was of value, i.e. great patient outcomes and patient satisfaction at a fair total cost of care. But those are two distinct things, the payment and the care. If we change the payment model, but the provider behavior doesn't change in a way that actually improves patient outcomes and care, then what are we doing here? Or the converse, if we do not change the payment model, then how does anyone expect the care paid for is going to change? Employers or carriers who just meander along with a broad PPO network happily paying as much for low-value care as for high-value care and happily paying centers of excellence as much as non-centers of excellence, how is a provider who wants to spend time and money building out a practice to deliver better patient outcomes, how can they do that without overcoming some pretty fundamental business model challenges? This whole concept is one that my guest today, Dan O'Neill, has talked about and will talk about today. Dan says the first step is for insurers, IPAs, managed care organizations to take an absolute chainsaw to their network management bureaucracy. There must be a clear door to a value-based payment model. It must be that if you're a provider or you're a physician practice, primary care practice in particular, and you want to go down a value-based care path, there has to be a clear door and a pathway for you. I think I have a non-perfect litmus test for anybody with a value-based payment program who wants a heuristic to check if their value-based payment program is actually meaningfully impacting models of care in the marketplace. If most of the provider organizations who are part of that value-based program still incentivize and pay their doctors using FFS incentives like RVUs, I'd step back and think about that for a piece. Contemplate that doctors who are responsible for care decisions, still have every incentive to do everything that they would have done had the provider organization just been paid FFS. What's the point of value-based payments that extract exactly zero behavior change? And that is not a rhetorical question. So back to the conversation from last week with Dr. Wayne Jenkins, citing all of the things that can go horribly wrong when an employer's benefit designs are misaligned with the financial realities of their workforce. You get what you pay for. And I don't just mean that in terms of the dollars outlaid, since we all know in healthcare prices and quality have nothing to do with each other. I mean, in terms of what you choose to pay for and how you choose to pay for it. That's the macro of this whole thing. But indulge me as I get into the micro for just one sec. Let me just remind everybody about Goodhart's Law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. More on the why of this in the interview with Dr. Rishi Wadhira on the Hospital Readmission Reduction Program, that's episode 326, and also what happens when 
we don't adhere to Goodhart's law as we evaluate PCPs, which Rebecca Etz talks about in episode 295. Today with Dan O'Neill, we go through where we're at on the continuum of value-based payments and how those payments are impacting the care, value-based or otherwise, that is incentivized by those payments. We tick through four gradations of value-based payments. Number one, a pure volume contract, otherwise known as FFS, fee-for-service. Second gradation, a clinician bonus for achieving quality measures. Number three, gradation, a piece of the savings, i.e. MSSP, Medicare Shared Savings Program. And then number four gradation, which is the highest, is some kind of global risk. My guest today, Dan O'Neill, is Chief Commercial Officer over at Pine Park Health. Besides over a decade in healthcare tech and services, he was a policy fellow at the National Academy of Medicine and worked in the Senate on the Senate Help Committee. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dan O'Neill, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Great to be with you again. Well, it is amazing to have you back. You are the perfect person to discuss where we are in value-based policies and payment mechanisms that produce value-based care. You can talk about a spectrum of value-based contracts just to take this down to the next level of specificity. Typically, you have at one end of the spectrum a pure volume contract, which remains the predominant form. This is fee-for-service. Then you'll have a small step in the direction of value, which is to say the clinician continues to be paid fee-for-service. But on top of that, there are some small or mid-sized bonuses for hitting particular quality targets. Well-controlled diabetes hypertension under control, colonoscopy happening on the appropriate schedule, those kind of tactical outcome measures. Then you move further along and you say, okay, you can get bonuses for quality. Now you also can get a piece of the savings. If you deliver care that ultimately results in lower overall cost to the system, which presumably is a reflection of a person needing less care because their conditions are well-managed, then you can get a piece of the savings. That's a shared savings contract in which case you participate at some level, but you don't capture all of the value created by your care. And then you can move all the way to what's often referred to as global risk or global capitation. You get 100%. You're fully accountable for the cost and quality of care for a panel of patients, a population. And then any savings created by your management of that population relative to a benchmark, you keep. That's sort of the spectrum of these contracts. To your point, You have to be able to measure things. You have to be able to set metrics and you have to be able to set benchmarks. And that is fiendishly difficult, not just in healthcare, but in any service industry, realistically. If you think about how you measure quality for a teacher, it's extremely hard because the impact of a teacher often doesn't materialize until years later in how the student may perform at the next academic level or as an adult. And that's not unlike healthcare. You can think about this in law. If you wanted to set a value-based contract for a lawyer, it's pretty hard to actually write the metric that defines value or defines quality. Uh, So we've made a lot of progress in that in healthcare, but we are absolutely not at some sort of a finish line. Yeah, indeed, because the goal can be as varied as the patients themselves. Adding a layer here, there's also sort of two components to even the, the payment structure. And one is what's the organization receiving, but then the other one is what are the doctors, nurses, providers themselves receiving. And even sometimes with value-based payments, 
at the organization level or the value-based contracts that the organization participates in, the providers themselves are still being paid in an FFS mechanism with bonuses based on volume. Yeah, I think we saw a study a month ago or something in JAMA that made that exact point, which is to say when you look through what's going on at health systems, hospital systems, but also some physician organizations, what you find is the organization may be paid differently from pure fee-for-service or pure volume, but that doesn't always cascade through to the individual person who needs to be incented. Now, to some extent, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it's possible that what the organization is doing is configuring a team that collectively contributes to an outcome. And the role of an individual in that team may not be to worry about getting somebody in for colonoscopy on schedule, right? That may not be the doctor's job. That might be a scheduler's job or a medical assistant or a care coordinator. And so if the organization can collectively structure a team to deliver the outcome, that's not the end of the world. But also what I think you often have going on in practice today is organizations that, California is a good example here uh, in the managed care case where we have sort of separated in many cases insurer contracting from physician contracting. There's sort of an intermediary layer. There's groups, there's these huge IPAs and MSOs that kind of control access to health insurance contracts in certain markets. They are often receiving a global capitation payment from the insurer. Now that's at the far right end of that spectrum we talked about in the the gradations of value-based care. But then they are converting that into a pure fee-for-service payment for the individual practice or the individual physician. So if you're a physician in a market like that, on paper at some level, a very large amount of money has moved from a fee-for-service contract to a quote-unquote value-based contract if you look at the way money flows out the door of the insurers. But if you look at it in the way that it flows in the door for a particular practice or physician, it hasn't changed. It's still fee-for-service, oftentimes without any quality measure at all. If we all can agree on one thing, it's that there is inertia in healthcare. (laughs) So you had teed up the four different kinds of value-based models, let's just say. The first one was the pure volume contract, which is FFS. Let's talk about the second one, which is probably a fee-for-service chassis, but there's bonuses for quality there. I have gotten more than one outreach lately from PCPs across the country. Obviously, this is anecdotal, but it's more than an N of one. Effectively, what these primary care doctors are saying is in this second bucket, the care that they're able to provide their patients, they feel is actually diminished over just your regular fee-for-service. Because what winds up happening, the patient comes in with some concern, right? And while they're sitting there, there's pop-up windows popping up like, did this patient get a colonoscopy? Did this patient get a mammogram? Did this patient... Like there's so much with the managing to the quality metric that the doctor spends time not addressing the needs of that particular patient who's sitting right in front of them. They're spending their time talking about things that the patient might not be ready to talk about or that the doctor has decided aren't as important in this exact moment to the patient as whatever organic conversation the doctor would like to have with that patient. It's probably a great example of Goodhart's Law and and why everybody should adopt Rebecca Etz's PCP quality instrument. But what do you think about that? But where I start here is sort of with maybe two thoughts. One is, I think this is why it's important to 
when we talk about value-based care, to think about two different things that need to happen. We need to change the payment incentives, and then we need to change care delivery models and organizations and practices in response to those incentives. The first one needs to happen, and it needs to happen in a significant enough way to both drive and fund the second change. And so what I think you're describing is a situation in which the second change hasn't happened, probably because the incentive is quite weak, right? So it's not clear that the way to deliver on a screening or a prevention program is to do that by individual encounters between a physician who's there to see a patient who came in with a specific complaint and then to introduce the screening nudge into that situation. What you're really, I think, hearing there is there's an incentive that was not strong enough to drive any material change in the way the practice operates. It just tried to drop this in on top. It doesn't make sense. It's awkward. What you probably want is if the practice is responsible for a panel of patients and needs to make sure that everybody gets a mammogram and everybody gets their flu shot and everybody gets their COVID booster on schedule, that has to be a team effort. There has to be a system wrapped around that. It's probably not something that an individual clinician responding to a a specific complaint on Thursday at 10.15 a.m., that's not necessarily where you want to introduce it. So I'd say that is kind of my attempt to diagnose structurally. What I would also say, though, is some of these complaints are, I would argue, somewhat misguided from the clinicians. So it is true that historically we paid physicians for spending 15 minutes with a patient regardless of what they did with those 15 minutes, essentially, or we paid them to do a procedure regardless of whether it improved the patient's life in any way, right? And even made it worse, you just get paid anyway. That's volume-based payment. That's fee-for-service. So some of this is it's quite possible that if we think about this at a population level or a system level, we want the physician to interrupt those 15 minutes and talk about something. Not always, but sometimes we want to use that relationship and that moment to actually talk to the patient about something that's really important for them, but that they don't understand is important because they didn't go to medical school and then do a residency. So we're, we're actually trying to get the physicians to introduce things into those conversations that might be awkward, that might not feel natural. So I'd sort of try to look into this sort of two ways. One, I think there's a lot structurally that we can do to make these systems work better. And that starts with much stronger, more aggressive payments, payment change. But then I also think clinicians need to be open to the fact that when we say value-based care, we we are actually intending to change your day. That is what we're trying to do. That's not going to happen unless you're willing to change some things about your day and your patient interaction. I could also think that the organizations themselves are not thinking through from a operational perspective or an execution perspective what the actual best way is to do things. So if you don't do that, then the default answer is always just add more stuff, just pile it on. You know, the PCP can do this in their 15 minute visit and they can do that too. And they can do this, right? As opposed to thinking through like, maybe it should be something that happens proactively. For example, you pull a list of all the patients that haven't gotten a colonoscopy and you have somebody call them all. I mean, if you work with an organization like Adelaide or Caravan Health, or you work with some of these actually even plans, they have people that do that and, and they're managing population health at the population level proactively as opposed to kind of in anecdotal one-offs in which the only people that actually get counseled also, even if you think about it, probably the main people who are, do I want to use the term non-compliant? you know, who haven't been getting their annual screenings or whatever are probably the people that aren't showing up for visits. <laughs> like it's the people that aren't showing up 
that really actually probably need the counseling. And, and I think to, to your point about sort of the, the defaults and, and whether we actually make significant change, a lot of that, it originates, I would argue, with insurers in this case. And I'm somebody who's often critical of provider organizations. But in this area, I think insurers have been lethargic. They've left the defaults in absolutely the wrong place. They've been unwilling to do the hard work, the hard sort of unsexy operational work of changing fundamentally how they contract with provider organizations. So what you get if you are an individual primary care practice and you're saying, I want to go in this direction. This is how I want to take care of my patients. I want to set up a system that reminds them of their screenings. I want to set up a system that checks in and makes sure that they're getting their the medication that I prescribe for them and that they're taking it the right way. They're not having any side effects. I want to be proactive in that way. I want to be accountable. That's what I went to medical school to do. If you are that practice or that physician, you often don't have a path. If you go out and try to raise your hand to insurers in most markets around the country, even insurers where the executive team talks a blue streak about investing in primary care and value and so on and so forth, what you get is your option is a fee-for-service contract, end of list. That is the experience of most provider organizations, at least physician practices, most of the time. The big exception, frankly, is CMS. This is an unusual area where if you actually want to make a change in how you practice, your best options today are Medicare or CMS programs work with the government. If you try to do this with an Anthem, if you try to do this with a Blue Shield of California, if you try to do this with a lot of these carriers, they do not have a door. They don't have a way or a pathway for an individual physician practice to raise their hand and say, I don't want to be on fee-for-service. I keep hearing your, your C-suite talk about value. I want to be on a value agreement. How do I do that? There's no path for those people, generally speaking, because at the grassroots level, the insurers are not changing the operational management, the frontline pathways for provider network management and provider relations. Now, there's obviously exceptions. Humana is probably an outstanding exception. The, the insurer that's probably furthest along on this path. And there are other, there's certain blues plans in certain markets in North Carolina, for example, that are much further along this path. But I think most of the time, if you raise your hand as a practice and you want to work with an insurer in this way, that's not an option for you in, in practice. Ticking through what we have touched on as examples of why value-based care, you know, why we are where we are right now and, and the implications of where we are in the pursuit of value-based care. We were talking about that second bucket. Clinicians get bonused or there's some sort of organizational bonus based on a fee-for-service chassis that has some quality metrics that they're trying to reach. And effectively, what that tends to wind up leading to is like provider whack-a-mole. Providers are, are asked to do things at the end of a clinical visit. But then to your point, okay, like how would that then be changed? It would change if the provider organizations are really given a decent <laughs> program that they could move into that's for reals, some sort of value-based capitation, you know, it's further along the continuum. If that's not possible, then we get stuck in this messy middle where there might not be enough money to create a non-fragmented patient journey and actually fully address gaps in care. This is probably also exacerbated on the commercial side. So if I'm a primary care doctor and, and I've got whatever percentage of my patient panel that's Medicare, and then I've got whatever larger percentage might be coming from commercial contracts, and there's absolutely no opportunity within the commercial contracts realistically to move to a, a value-based direction, like then it becomes 
tough. Yeah, agreed. So I think if you have an incumbent provider organization, a health system say, right, and we're trying to chip away at their incentive structure until it gets to a point in which they actually change the operating environment for clinicians and for patients. That's a very long road because you're sort of chasing your tail with fee-for-service rates going up every year, not just in Medicare, but particularly in commercial lines. And so you're constantly trying to catch up and create a big enough incentive for them to pay attention. That's just very, very difficult. There's a strong case to actually clamp down on prices and start to drive them down. And you start to see conversations about this in some local markets, Indiana right now, for example, to actually push those fee-for-service rates down. One option for CMS, which they have pursued with things like direct contracting, is to create much stronger incentives so that you could actually create a foundation for somebody to say, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to walk away from fee-for-service, I'm going to create a new organization, or I'm going to pivot my small organization and just focus on this niche. And right now, yeah, it's a niche. It's traditional Medicare rules plus maybe a few Medicare Advantage plans. But if that market can be big enough, and it can be, to actually build a business that just focuses there, now you have an operating environment that is designed differently. It's designed to operate differently. Clinicians can plug into that operating environment. They can work there and they can actually practice differently. And then over time, it creates an option for insurers elsewhere or employers or whoever wants to contract differently. They now have somebody to hit with on the tennis court. To summarize what you just said, if we're going to move the needle and have value-based payments that incent true value-based care, One thing is that CMS could potentially do is really create programs that would enable providers to stand up an organization that just slots into that value-based care payment, for example. Maybe we're talking about Oak Street here or ChenMed, Iora, or, or some of these advanced primary care practices that really are, I mean, they're only taking patients within a certain CMS model. Maybe they can start to try to get commercial lives. I guess TBD, whether one medical will be that foray, but that's a conversation for another day. And then the other thing that you're talking about is if we decrease FFS, fee-for-service, like at this moment, people are making a tidy sum still on FFS. Like everybody complains every year about the rate of increase and it's this whole hullabaloo. But at the end of the day, it still must be good enough because people are still actively pursuing that business model. Except primary care doctors, especially independent primary care doctors, let me say that very loud for the people in the back. The other thing that I have also heard suggested, so, you know, we went through the four gradations of of value-based care that you had laid out at the top of this conversation. One of them is just a pure volume contract, which is FFS, which isn't really value-based care at all. Then we've got the clinician bonus for quality. Then the third one, shared savings programs, where the provider organization is actually taking a piece of the action. Interestingly, The Medicare shared savings programs that exist right now, which ACOs, accountable care organizations, participate in, just to kind of level set if you're not super familiar, that whole program is optional at this juncture. A clinician organization can choose whether they want to be part of an MSSP contract or part of an ACO. I heard Rick Gilfillan say the other day that on average, an ACO saves about 10% in the total cost of care question mark on that because it is optional whether there's some sort of bias there that the clinicians who are really mission driven and who feel like they've got good clinical workflows and whatever, like they're the only physicians that are signing up for these ACOs. So in some ways, it's sort of separating the great from the not so great. And that's where the 10% comes from. Either way, though, probably another thing that could be added to the list of potential considerations is to make those programs non-optional. Agreed. Yeah, no, I... For what it's worth, 
I'm pretty sure the robust research on Medicare shared savings suggests a much smaller savings once you properly characterize this than what Rick's describing there. I think it's low single digits, but it is meaningful nevertheless, or at least it's meaningful for some, primarily those that are non-hospital affiliated, uh, those ACOs. But the way I think of it is the first step we still need to take, which is changing the defaults. The second step is removing the fee-for-service alternative for a lot of these contracts, right? So right now, we're still in a place where if you want to do something other than fee-for-service with most insurers, you have to fight like hell and you're going to spend probably years trying to work through the process and find the right person in the organization. They make it as hard as possible to do anything other than fee-for-service. So the first step is for insurers, IPAs, managed care organizations to take an absolute chainsaw to their network management bureaucracy so that the default path, there's a clear door. If you're a provider, if you're a physician practice, primary care practice in particular, and you want to go down a value-based care path, there's a clear door and a pathway for you. And that's the easiest choice to make. So switch to defaults. And then the second step, which for CMS could be now, and for some of these Medicare Advantage insurers could be not too far off if they lean into it, is to actually say, yeah, we're not doing a peer fee for service anymore. That's not an, an option on the table. That's where you want to go, I think. Now, we have to be a little bit careful about that because there are, and I think CMS has always been a little bit timid about this, in part because they're trying to bring everybody along and they realize that physicians and hospitals mostly make their money other places. And so they're trying to gradually boil the frog. And they're also trying to give people time to transform the organizations, which you can't do overnight. These are giant battleship organizations. So I think that's perfectly sensible, but it's also true that at some point you have to keep marching. So first you change the defaults, and then you do need probably to make some of these programs mandatory. Once the evidence is robust that this works, that it doesn't cause harm, it's time to require it. Let me ask you something about payers, Dan. If you get these payers and they talk a good game, right? You hear the head of innovation at some of these payers. Sure. And let me tell you, they will talk long and loud about their forays into innovative payment models. But then if you, to your point, if you look at what they're actually doing, especially if you're on the provider side trying to negotiate, trying to get a value-based contract of any kind, it's like pulling teeth. Why is that? You had mentioned the bureaucracy in contracting at these payers. Are like, is it organizational dysfunction that like those bits of the payer organization are just so internally powerful that nobody can get past them? Is it? You know, my sense is part of it is just why was Netflix not invented at Comcast type dynamics? If you are a health insurer, if you did nothing new for the last 10 years, your margins still went up every year. Your profit, your revenue went up probably came close to doubling. If you didn't sign up a single new page, right, you didn't grow your business at all, you didn't do anything new, your revenue and your margin, your profit goes up every year. That's healthcare. That's true for hospital systems, true, too, incidentally, right? So it's just the way healthcare is, at least in the US, it's a rising tide, more money pumps into this industry every year. So the incentives to do something different in that environment are pretty weak. I think that's part of what's going on. Part of it is, to be fair, a lot of these insurers are operating across multiple lines of business, multiple segments. And the value-based contract that may make sense in Medicare may not make sense, probably doesn't make sense in commercial. So it's not simple. And they have, they have relationships with provider organizations that span all these lines of business. And so there's a, a very complicated cat herding process here. And then I think finally, 
organizational change is just exceedingly difficult when you have the sort of accumulated operational debt of 20 years of doing things in a certain way. There are large health insurers in California that when you go through a traditional contracting process, they will mail you. They can't use email. They can't use fax even. It's incredibly archaic. And so if you think about it, an organizational environment where either the management isn't motivated enough or they're not skilled enough to drive this kind of change, which is admittedly quite difficult, then what you get is sort of a just inertia wins. And so things just keep chugging on. What you often then find is the ones that take it seriously at the leadership level, and a lot of them, I think it is entirely sincere. They're genuine about this. They may create a separate group, you know, a dedicated group to do value-based contracting. And in some insurers, I think Santine, I think Humana, this is a real thing. It's a real pathway. They're doing real partnerships with providers that, that, are, that go in a value-based direction. It's absolutely constructive. But it often rides next to the core network management infrastructure that's just kind of grinding along. And that might be the right way to start. But at some point, you need to get to a place where, as I was saying before, you switch the defaults and then you go in a direction where this is the whole thing. You need the value-based contracting side to swallow the rest of the organization at some point. And that needs to be the path or I think we're never going to get to where we want to go. And if that is the path to your point, somebody needs to say, look, 10 years from now, this is the vision. So start figuring out how you're going to reverse engineer yourself into that moment. So if, if I am a really motivated person and I have a goal to change the default, maybe I work for a large payer and it sounds like if my goal is to change the payment default, then maybe my best move would be to go work for a dedicated group doing value-based contracting at one of these large payers, you know, try to get a transfer over there. But then we also have all of these startups, upstart insurance, especially in the Medicare Advantage space, they're cropping up like weeds. We have direct contracting in which the carriers get cut out altogether. But, you know, let's just say I have a background in insurance, carriers, health insurance, and and I want to try to start moving the needle. What is your advice for me? What should I do? Where should I go work? You've got a couple of options. I think to your point, a lot of these insurers, I think at a leadership level, they are sincere about this and they're trying to do something in this direction. So there is a group that you can work with. And I've done some work with the team at Humana, they have a pathway. They are much further along than most insurers. There's a group at Centene that does this in their WellCare Medicare Advantage business. There are organizations where this exists for sure. You could also probably do this at some of the more local, but still well-intentioned groups. A scan, perhaps, in California is an example. Alignment Healthcare is another example, smaller but growing, and I think growing in the right direction. So those are options. For sure, you can be on the other side of it. You could go to a Pine Park Health, you can go to an Oak Street, you can go to a, an Iora, somebody like that. And, and they are trying to wrangle this from the other side. And it's a slog, but eventually you get there with enough pressure on the system. The other thing that I think is maybe an, an underappreciated option to some extent, there's a scattering of in some states, certainly in California, I think parts of Florida, Arizona, there are these existing managed care organizations uh, that live as this intermediary layer and really haven't kept up with the times. So I think there is the possibility of either going to those organizations or if you're well-funded, say on the private equity side, taking over those organizations and ripping and replacing some of what they're doing and saying, look, there's a way that you did contracting in the mid-90s and you haven't updated it at all. It's time. 
it's a quarter century later since you invented this template and much of the market has moved on. There are better ways, there are things that we've learned about how to do this. And so some of those organizations have enough critical mass and enough relationships, but are still small enough that you could turn the ship in more timely fashion. So if I am Mark Cuban or some, yeah. some other billionaire with a social mission alongside my financial one, who do I buy? You look for these networks that are already woven into the system. You've got lots of, Optum's been doing a lot of this for what it's worth in Southern California, buying up these these MSOs and, and uh, IPAs in that market, probably in part with a thesis that isn't too dissimilar here. And there is the possibility of doing that elsewhere. There are organizations, I think, somewhat like this in South Florida and some other markets. So I think that can be an option. And it doesn't have to be the sort of M&A path. You can conceivably go work there and, and work on affecting change, of course. Just given everything that UHG, United Health Group, is buying, which is Optum's parent company, I've heard it said more than once that we're going to wind up with single-payer healthcare, <laughs> not right. in the way that many people view it. You're going to have one entity controlling the entire market. Dan, is there anything that you feel is important to mention right now that I haven't asked you? I always like to end on an optimistic note, affecting change in healthcare. It, it is slow. It's going to be a generational project, but we are making progress. There are organizations that didn't and couldn't exist five or 10 years ago. There's a whole generation of clinicians that are looking in a different direction and expecting something different and working to build something different. And I think that's extremely exciting. We've covered a lot of the problems and the barriers and the obstacles, and those are all real and people live with them every day. We are making gradual progress. My parting thought on that would be, let's stick with it and let's keep turning the dial up, keep turning the heat up until we get the change that we want in how we all experience this as patients. And Dr. Eric Bricker on the show a couple of weeks ago, he effectively said the same thing, like change in healthcare is glacial. It might not be immediately apparent, but you might not see it for a while, but it's uh, coming. Do you want to just talk a little bit about Pine Park Health and what you've got going on over there? Of course. Yeah, so Pine Park is a relatively new and relatively small value-based primary care delivery organization. We're a primary care practice. We specifically deliver on-site and in-home care for the residents of senior living communities. These places where there's already an existing cluster of seniors living in one place with some community infrastructure usually there. And we go and we embed primary care there so that we bring the care to the patients instead of expecting the patients to accommodate the patterns and practices of, of legacy healthcare providers. And we do that in partnership with the managers of these communities. We do that also through value-based contracts, both with CMS. We participate in multiple CMS programs and with Medicare Advantage plans. So it can be really efficient home-based care then, because if you are providing that service within one particular community, it's not like you've got to drive half an hour. So you, you can see lots of patients in, in one day, even though the care is conveniently at someone's home is what I'm understanding. Exactly. Dan O'Neill, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It was great talking to you. Always appreciate the invitation. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.